0: This is Mike Montero.
1: I'm Erica Hall.
0: This is Larissa Berger. We're broadcasting from Mule Design Studio in beautiful North Beach, San Francisco. This is Voice of Design.
2: one of the most important pieces of work that we can do now is really not just level up the discourse that designers participate in, but also try to answer this question of what is design? What does a designer do? Try to answer it in plain language, not in obscure academic terminology, but really try to make it understandable to the rest of the world. If we really believe that design is this force of nature that can really change the world for the better, then it's incumbent upon us to really explain why and and help people understand like what is the difference between quote-unquote good design and quote-unquote bad design so they, they can form an opinion themselves.
1: Hello and welcome to The Voice of Design. I'm your host Erica Hall. I'm Larissa Berger. And we're coming to you from our basement studio in beautiful North Beach in San Francisco. And today we are extremely excited to have a friend and colleague of mine from the East Coast from New York City, uh, Mr. Coy Vin. Hi Coy. how are you?
2: I'm great. How are you?
1: I'm doing really well. In fact, we're just back from, we had a fantastic trip to New York City. Oh, good. Uh, Very quick, very warm.
2: (laughs) It's been a weird spring.
1: Yeah, but got to walk around and eat some delicious food and now back in San Francisco.
2: Fantastic!
1: So we are so excited to have you on the podcast because you know you co-founded a, a studio roughly the, the same time that we co-founded Mule, mm-hmm. and then you went off on all of these other amazing design adventures. And uh, meanwhile, we've had adventures at Mule. So
2: yeah, it's been a long time since I first became aware of you guys, and it's hard to believe it's a whole different era now. But yeah, I've sort of bounced all over the design world. I've been at big companies and small companies. i had a startup, sold a startup, worked at other startups. And right now I am at Adobe. I've been at Adobe for the past two and a half years where my title is principal designer, which basically means I'm a designer who's your pal. I guess.
1: Oh, that's (laughs) fantastic because, you know, we at Mule say we're the designers who are not your pal. (laughs) So this is going to be a fantastic (laughs) conversation. Yeah. yeah. Tell us a a little bit more about what that means.
2: I have a pretty unique job at Adobe. I spend half of my time in the community at conferences with customers, trying to get a sense of how the design profession is changing and how, how people are thinking about design. And then I spend the other half of my time, Working on products, working on, on roadmaps, strategizing about where our offerings at Adobe for designers are going, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of different divisions here. And, I, and I'm focused on the products that are for people like ourselves, experienced designers, people trying to create you know, apps, websites, and everything that's coming down the pike.
1: Cool. That's a lot. It sounds like you get to just go around and talk to a lot of people. so that that puts you in a fantastic position. So our inaugural season of voice of design is concerned with what is the job of a designer now in this crazy, mixed up complex time. And I was particularly interested in talking to you after your recent uh, talk and The Associated Post mm-hmm. in defense of design thinking. Which is terrible. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I really like that title. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit? How do you see the job of a designer in this time?
2: That is a great question. I mean, in the broadest sense, I think designers are here to translate human intention into tangible execution. So, all the things that people want out of the world around us, designers are here to turn those into real palpable, touchable or experienceable to make up a fake word kind <laughs> of outcome for um, for the benefit of the world around us.
1: So you talked uh, a little bit about in your in your talk, in your piece, that designers are threatened by democratization. How do you see that manifest? Because from our perspective, maybe we see things as a little too democratized out here. Yeah, so the crux
2: of my argument is that designers look at variants on the design that we do, like design thinking, which is a kind of a a way of tackling problems of all kinds with a designer's mindset. Or they look at you know, sites like Fiverr or 99designs, which are effectively lowering the cost of design. Or they look at practices like Spec work where companies ask designers to produce design speculatively before they actually hire them. They, they look at these and other variants on the practice of design as sort of encroachments on the designer's territory, the designer's domain. And um, I argue that there are good and bad sides to all of these things, but ultimately, if they're bringing more people into the design process, if there are broadening the language and making the the tools and the methods of design understandable and real and, and relatable to more and more people, I feel that ultimately that's a good thing because it helps everybody understand design better, helps to essentially popularize what it is that we do. And there's so little of that right now. There's so little understanding of the tools and methods and ideas and context of design that. To continue to guard it too jealously, to continue to p- put a wall around it and bar people from participating in it is ultimately self-defeating.
0: I wonder like, where the reaction comes from, that it feels like the resistance here is about not wanting these kind of different practices. I think that's a cool way of naming these different things that are popping up as like replacing the total of design. Um my background is in engineering and I think that's the part that is very confusing to me because clearly like these are just kind of pieces of what could be a design practice what which doesn't have to be any one individual's sole practice so like I can be a programmer and still accept that programmers who are focused on security or other things outside of the realm of when I was a programmer, my day to day can exist and live <laughs> and be happy right. without it being kind of this like zero sum game to whatever the work that I was contributing was.
2: Uh, that's exactly right. In fact, in my talk and in my post, I draw a direct comparison to the world of engineering where it's very broad and hi- highly varied and highly democratized to the point where you have so many resources for anybody to learn engineering, so many opportunities to participate in engineering at all different kinds of levels. You have companies like Apple with their Swift language, they promote Swift with the idea that everyone can code. And you have sites like CodePen, which are essentially like the equivalent of like a dribble or something for engineering. And yet, all these other variants of on engineering, they don't threaten the sanctity or the the livelihood or the integrity of the concept of engineering as a whole. And if anything, it has helped strengthen engineering, has helped popularize you know, the act of writing code and has made it more understandable, more palpable to more people. And I feel that design, the way we've been talking about it for at least two decades now as this really powerful, potentially world-changing force, design, in my belief, totally has the power to do that as well, to achieve that kind of pervasive understanding to earn a level of trust and and comfort amongst people who aren't designers. And I don't feel like what we've been doing, which is holding it very tightly and trying to protect its quote-unquote realness or trueness and and making sure that only real designers are acknowledged as being qualified as practitioners, I don't think that's that's working for us long term.
1: It's so funny that you talk about the, the idea of a real designer, because this is some, always something I've been interested in because I don't come from a traditional design background at all. You know, my background was in philosophy and I just had a strong interest in technology and I found my way into design through being Just interested in it and asking a lot of questions. And it turned out that as the field of interactive design matured, the value of asking questions uh, became greater and greater with, I think, the power that these tools were giving us, right? Because initially it was just the internet's amazing. Let's just make a lot of internet. But I think the power was limited when it was pages and forms. And now that everything's connected and the internet is in everyone's pocket and now about to be in everyone's refrigerator, you know, everyone's kitchen, we all have a Alexas and things like that, the power is so much greater. And so I've found that the value I bring to the practice has increased because the value of creating an artifact relative to all of, you know, what you talked about with the intent and the choices Mm that one artifact in a system is possibly less significant than it used to be when it was all about, you know, an individual website or an individual artifact.
0: Yeah. But somehow there's still this like sense that at least like starting out that if you can't make beautiful artifacts, you are not a designer. And it's strange to me how there's not, I don't know, because again, like in, in programming and engineering, you know, I would say that, yes, it's very open in a way, but there there's definitely fights about that. And there is a pecking order for sure, mm-hmm. but there's always this correction that happens, which is kind of the innate complexity of the system. So like a lot of what, in order for the people who, to kind of like let go of those strongly held beliefs that, you know, you had to understand every piece of the machine before you were fit to write a line of code kind of, um, or right. to con- contribute to a project. I mean, those voices just got blocked out by the fact that there was just too much complexity for any one person to keep in their head, like at a very physical <laughs> level. Mm-hmm. And it feels like instead, designers are kind of clenching on <laughs> to that work. And And maybe, Erica, to your point, that's because there are less and less artifacts. And at a designer per artifact level, the artifacts are kind of... I don't know, that's that's my hypothesis.
2: I think there's, there's a lot of validity to that hypothesis that as design has gotten more and more complex, it's become necessary to involve more people in the design process, certainly as stakeholders, but more and more as the ones who are doing the design. You made a comment about how some designers... Or there is an expectation that unless you're really able to produce a very sophisticated outcome on the the visual side or the presentation side, that that there's a feeling that you know you're not a real designer. I would actually say that that's certainly true for a certain segment of people who are part of the design world. But there's also another segment of the design world who turn their noses down at people who make things look pretty. There's there's a whole aspect of of design practitioners generally on the UX side or the strategy side who will proudly claim that they don't worry about making things beautiful that they just worry about making things either you know performance or profitable or you know whatever and I think both extremes are not really acknowledging how broad and necessarily complex design is you know there's there's not a system out there that a designer, can rework that wouldn't be improved by on the one hand thinking about the larger context thinking about the the you know return on investment the the performance of the system the success of, of the customers as well as benefiting from a really sophisticated very tasteful visual design or presentation oriented approach so there's I don't think it's one or the other. There's there's room all along the spectrum for people who have different ways of balancing one or the other.
1: Yeah. So, Koi, why do designers fight so much? I, <laughs> like, it's I, exactly I, what you're talking about. These tarot like there's so much work to do. Like, clearly, there is so much bad design out there. We need more good design. We need more different perspectives. Yeah. And yet, like if you follow twitter and hang out in that garbage fire anymore you see like terror that's all designers talk about are these territory battles there was just another one that blew up about i couldn't even get into it about the meaning of ux or something so why (laughs) do you think why do you think engineers like you talk about a little bit in your piece like how there's more tranquility on that side but it it does seem like designers are so fighty with other designers about these definitions why do you think that is
0: Oh, I think engineers fight.
2: <laughs> oh yeah.
1: Yeah. Larissa's got that perspective. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I would imagine I would imagine there's there's some level of quarreling that's gonna be unavoidable in either of these professions. But I think really the, the reason designers fight is that we're usually accustomed to being outnumbered by others. You know, we we're usually the minority at companies large and small, with only a few exceptions. And we usually find ourselves on the defensive with other disciplines. We're usually trying to argue strenuously for the validity of our presence. And if you're in, you know, on a small design team at a big company and you have been successful in carving out a niche for yourself or successful at getting a seat at the table, as we say, then you become very wedded to, very invested in that particular worldview. And that particular worldview might be purely on the UX side or that particular worldview might be, you know, very deeply on the the presentation side or or somewhere along that spectrum. When that becomes the way that you have succeeded and you then turn your attention to the community and try to present it to the community, and you'll find that other people have have come up with different formulas for success within their own careers, within their own teams. and, And yet they still have that you know, that predilection to being defensive and fighting about it. And it just leads to that quarreling within the community itself. That's my theory of of why it happens. But there's another aspect too, which I would say, which is that, you know, design as a craft or as an art form or whatever you want to call it, I feel that it's relatively immature and go into the reasons for that. But on the level of discourse, on the level of being able to have intelligent, thoughtful, Discussion about not just the mechanics of our work, not just the methods of our work, but also the context, the, the larger meaning, the larger implication of our work. Design's discourse is pretty meager, um, to put it mildly. It's, it's more focused on how to do something than on, on why something should be done or why something exists. And until we can really level up that discourse, until we can engage one another in much more thoughtful conversation, I think that that kind of quarreling will be much more prevalent than I think any of us would really like.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is really interesting because it's starting to sound like all of this is interconnected. So designers are quarreling and designers like to throw up barriers because they feel protective once they carve out their role in a particular organization and those barriers prevent are part of what prevents other people from having access to the field and participating in the discussion which then kind of if you're not letting people in that means there are fewer people in so then there are going to be fewer people to take the side of design
2: yes absolutely
1: uh, and an- another thing you mentioned that I-, I thought was really interesting is an economic incentive for designers to kind of shroud their work in secrecy. And this is something I know that like uh, we've observed and we at Mule have fought uh, against a lot. We haven't fought other designers, but we've really tried to talk about, you know, my uh, partner Mike wrote the book Design is a Job to really try to demystify things, and we've been working at this Mm -hmm. demystification. And we've really seen sometimes clients want it to be magic or mystical.
2: A hundred percent. Yeah. I really feel like if you look at the origins of design and there there are many different origins of the design we practice today, but one of them was in the sort of agency world, the, the mad men model, if you will, of of these creative geniuses who um, bring this sort of narrative magic to products that companies produce. And that carried on through the sort of peak of the analog design era where design became this domain where a small number of superstars were celebrated and everybody sort of aspired to their success. What that was predicated on was this idea that you know, there are these lone geniuses out there, usually men who could just sort of cut right through all of the BS from a client or from the rest of the organization and bring this enlightened approach that they call design to solve problems of going to market and, and getting products and, and messages into the hands of, of customers. And that DNA is still with us in to a large extent. I mean, we still you know celebrate Individuals far more than we celebrate teams, even though we talk about teams being so essential to the design process today. You never really see see a team getting a, an award or a medal or from you know the IGA or something like that. You just see individuals. That has worked because, as you said, a lot of clients, you know, they have that attitude where they don't really want to be, you know, the the member of a club that that would admit them. So they they distrust their you know on staff designers, and so they turn to. Agencies and studios, or they hire folks from the outside who have been able to cultivate a, an air of mystery and and who have this like a priest's air about them of, of having a, like a, <laughs> a, a channel, direct channel between you know the, the god of creativity and the human world, and um, that has really propelled a lot of the studio and agency world. Um, you know, when I was in that world, I saw that again and again. You know, customers just wanting to to, to um, be told what to do by uh, the people that they hired
1: so that they could then fight with it.
2: <laughs> yes, right. so they could then turn around and, and say to you know their manager or their board or whatever to say this is this is a valid approach because it's it comes from a validated source
1: yeah, I, I love what you said about teams because you know one of the things we're doing now since uh, so many organizations are growing these internal teams is we're doing a lot more coaching and mentoring and training. And one of the workshops that Larissa and I do a lot is about collaborative research or, you know, a collaborative approach to evidence-based design. And we talk about the fact that it like these things are so complex and you need to have shared information among your team. But so often it's exactly what you said. No one is rewarding team effort. Everyone gives lip service Mm -hmm. to it. Everybody says, oh, of course we should be collaborative. But, oh, we're going to recognize the superstar.
0: How do we get past that? And there was actually very much this problem in engineering of, like, the lone genius. And this is what I actually hated the most about, like, the social network movie and the cult of Facebook early on was this idea that, like, you put usually a dude in the corner with headphones and they would just produce, you know— potentially millions of dollars of value. Um, And I think that that was so enticing to, you know, the business world and, and even aspiring programmers, but that wasn't the reality at all. And there has been a concerted effort behind, you know, introducing pair programming and distributing the knowledge more because that actually is better for software. The more people that can understand how something was made and are. Have a hand in making it does way better than documentation or or anything else but there was a lot of um early on i, I worked in audio r&d and, and there were people who had so much job security because they had built the very first version and they had no incentive to kind of open that up and they were also afraid that if they they touched it because that's kind of the nature of software <laughs> stuff would break. So it wasn't so easy to always like break open and then let people know. So there has been a real concerted effort around working as teams, at least in, on the programming side, um, that has taken a long time to convince businesses of because they see it as like, wait, I'm paying two people to do one person's job and et cetera, right. et cetera. Yeah. So
1: Corey, what have you seen? You're out there in the community talking to designers. Is there uh, the equivalent of pair programming happening. How are people uh, addressing this?
2: Oh, well, I don't know. This is this is something that m- most design teams are thinking about. Certainly not most people who have uh, you know attained the, the status of uh, you know a star designer. They're they're not thinking about how to undo their own success. You know, nor should they. I mean, they they. It's sort of unfair to to you know me to, to be glib about that. I, I think the, the problem of, are we recognizing the right people is certainly an an important one, but maybe not as imperative as are we participating in the work that we're doing to the fullest extent that we can. And I think that is more important. The, the idea that you know, if we have a seat at the table that then we're being acknowledged as fully accountable for both the success and the failure of the work that we contribute I think that's more important than the recognition at least for the near term and when so when I talk about full accountability, I mean one of the things that I like to say is that you know when you see products in the marketplace that are successful and they've had a meaningful design component in, in their, production, then designers will so avidly tell the story of that success and talk about how integral design was to bringing it to market, to to making it this home run that everybody recognizes. But on the other hand, there are numerous instances where design played a big part in bringing other products to market and those products might've failed. And when they fail, design is almost nowhere to be heard from. It's nowhere to be seen. It's it's not even a part of the conversation. The failure is usually a failure of the market or the failure of engineering, a failure of some other factor, but there's no willingness to really appraise what role design played in the that particular outcome. And I don't bring that up just to say that designers are so arrogant and they should be you know, taken down a notch or two when things fail. I, I think the the more important idea is that, as we always say, you know, there's so much to learn from failure. And so if you have teams who are investing significantly in design and their products uh, are not successful, that doesn't mean that all of the work that that team did is completely invalid. In fact, there's probably a lot to learn from that effort that would benefit other teams, whether at that same company or other companies. And by conveniently sweeping those under the rug and not examining them, and only celebrating the successes, we're we're getting a very sort of jaundiced view of, of how design works. In fact, in a way, we're inadvertently underscoring how superficial design is. It's like we're 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 only you know there for for the fair weather. We're not there for you know the long droughts.
1: Yeah, I think that also has to do with how we define design because when as you were talking. Uh, the thing that came to mind is the example that we like to point to a lot, uh which is the juicero <laughs> you know the the beautifully engineered machine for squeezing bags of frozen yes. vegetable <laughs> chunks that the people the nice people at Bloomberg uh so yeah. clearly pointed out was unnecessary and yeah. If you say design is you know the fit and the polish and even you know the industrial design of the device then you're like, wow, the design was good. But Mm -hmm. I think we have to say design is, you know, design is intention, making intentional choices. And one of those choices is the problem to solve. And so in that regard, I'd say a lot of people who might not be designers by a certain definition, that is to say the the entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. you know, I say if you come from this sort of like, you know, East Coast, West Coast perspective, design you know, on the East Coast comes out of what you were saying, like the agency, graphic design, madmen sort of thing. And out here, I would say the design leaders we have are these entrepreneurs who pick the problem and make those initial choices and those initial definitions. Mm -hmm. And so under that, I'd say something like the Juicero is terrible design, even though it was, you know, quite lovely to look at and pet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> and the ro- yeah. the
0: role of design in the Juicero was extremely small, right? Like I I don't know anything intimately about the company, but I would imagine that it took a while before they even hired people for those roles and they kind of had the explicit brief of like make it look like something Apple, right? Cuz I've had that input before and right. it's a, it's a really tough place to work from because you have to like crawl out of this hole. Yeah. yeah, you don't have that much status with it. I think that
2: goes back to what Erica just said. That there's a meaningful difference between the practice of design and the participation of a designer. So in, in the case of Jusuro, I actually don't know anything about the details of that story either, but it might've been true that the design team was small or hired late, but in some sense, design was a huge part of that company's story. And the founder and the engineers were all engaged in design probably early on. So you could look at it as a, as a design failure yeah, or a design story, at least.
1: It it was just a terrible idea that got a lot of funding. (laughs) So how do you, how do you see that? Because we're right now wrestling with, with a lot of these issues. And I want to go back to something you said about, we're not having enough of the discussion of the why. Uh, And I, absolutely agree with you because there's there was even a design magazine called How I don't know if it still exists mm-hmm. but it still seems like even in this day and age when we're wrestling with these complex systems with huge implications people are still focused on technique and so how do we balance you know we say oh we want to make design more welcoming we want to have more people feel that they are part of the design process we want this sort of democratization but then what do we do to ensure that or and we oh, I mean insure is the wrong word, because we can't insure anything. But how do we encourage and incentivize better choices while at the same time broadening participation?
2: It's a really tough problem, and I don't have a comprehensive solution that I'm proposing that everybody adopt. I and mean, I think it's something that as a profession we we have to come together to to figure it out. But I will say that you know, there's a top-down approach, which would be very difficult to put in place, which essentially would change up some of the economic incentives of the way design works in order to optimize for the why of it just as much as the how. That would be really, really difficult to put into place. But um, there's also the bottom-up approach, which is you know, if you and your colleagues at a company are of the, the mind that the discourse needs to be elevated, the best place to start is you know, with what you, you are in control of on a day-to-day basis. I mean, one of the things we've done at Adobe during my time here is to, to try to build a structure to enable better discussion of design, even just within our teams and within the company itself. And that sets a stage for, you know, more elevated discussion and sets a stage for bringing in more outside ideas, more more context, and gives us the opportunity to ask why more often. It's not a fully proven a model yet it's still a work in progress um, but i feel like you see this at, at other companies that have sort of achieved a, a kind of critical mass for the not just the practice of design but also the the thinking around design you know they get hungry to have more productive discourse and i think if more and more of us do that and start sharing the methods for doing that and also sharing some of the things that that arise then the next step might be to push some of these outlets that help this whole community share all of our knowledge um and you know i'm talking about the the twitter twitters and the mediums and the you know designer newses of the world which all they provide a val- very valuable service but at the same time they also optimize for less than um, thoughtful discussion frequently
1: if, <laughs> you're so diplomatic
0: can, yeah yeah that was very if, generous <laughs>
2: I mean, I, I respect these places quite a bit for for what they've done. I, and actually, I think that they offer us a great opportunity because they're convening these audiences together. And so if we can create a demand for a higher level of discernment in how they're curating this stuff, then we might start to see some change. And it would be great if they they didn't just, you know, optimize for, you know, applause or claps or whatever, or, or likes, (laughs) you know, if they they actually, there's an editorial filter on top of them that, that said, Hey, this is actually really good and worth your time. Yeah. Rather than just line voting.
1: Yeah. I think, I mean, I know medium is working on doing that a little bit, but, but I think it really is like, this is the undercurrent through all of these things is we do have to have incentives in place, right? Because if there isn't an incentive in terms of money or in terms of attention to behave a certain way. I saw a good Donald Glover quote today, because that's of course who everybody's talking about now as being the amazing creative genius that people, it's not that people are better people and I'm going to get this totally wrong. It's just that they have certain incentives and respond to those incentives. And I think that's the, I think the huge question is how do we create incentives for better discussions and, you know, more nuanced thinking and, and asking why when, you know, so much is, you know, when we think about where's the discussion in design, it feels like there isn't enough of one. Mm-hmm. And that's because the startup economy, I think we know so many design leaders who've gone over to that side. I don't want to talk mm-hmm. about it like they're Sith now or something, but <laughs> <laughs> they've gone over to the venture side. But I think that's where the the discussion has been pulled, right? That's where the the gravity is, is, oh, we're thinking about it in terms of design within this growth capitalism context. And now that it seems like the agency voice has kind of withered. So it's like, how do we get people to talk outside of that particular model?
0: What's strange is that I feel like part of the mainstream... Or rather like these discussions that you see online being so flat is that they seem to kind of really accept the framing and the baggage that like they are all only working in this like small piece of thing. And then Mm -hmm. Erica to your like growth capitalism piece, I don't quite understand why and maybe it will just take companies who did have designers early on like Slack, their success to kind of get other companies to try this. But it feels like there's always this ongoing, like having been on the other side, it feels like there's this ongoing question like design, who needs it? Is it really all it's cracked up to be? Because they can't point to, as Koi was saying, that exact point of success or failure. Like when, when a product fails like Juicero, like I think there are still people on that or who have followed that story within the venture community who believe like, well, maybe the design was just off. People still really like juice. I still see people buying <laughs> $9 juice. So there was something about that, you know, because it's the thing that they don't understand. And I don't know how we get away from just constantly reacting to this bad framing and this question that honestly shouldn't be a question. Yeah. And I think that's the the really frustrating part, having moved from engineering to, to design. Engineers have the huge benefit and programmers have the benefit of people think they they should exist. Yes. can't do it without engineers.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Well, I think people believe engineers should exist because they they not may not know how to program themselves and may not understand all of the you know intricacies of programming, but they they understand the role of a programmer. They understand what engineering contributes. And I think unless you have been, educated in some form as to what a designer does, most people just have no idea. They have no idea what a designer contributes. They have no idea what a designer does. I mean, you show them an app and they have no idea that they're looking at the product of, you know, hundreds of thousands of hours of design that impact directly how they behave during the day. And I think this does go to the idea of incentives. There will be no incentive to improving the way design talks or or behaves or is held accountable until more people understand what design is and so i would say that one of the the most important pieces of work that we can do now is really not just level up the discourse that designers participate in but also try to answer this question of what is design what does a designer do try to answer it in plain language, not in obscure academic terminology, but really try to make it understandable to the rest of the world. If we really believe that design is this force of nature that can really change the world for the better, then it's incumbent upon us to really explain why and, and help people understand like what is the difference between quote-unquote good design and quote-unquote bad design so they they can form an opinion themselves. Because absence any understanding of, of design, you know, the world just leaves designers to our own devices to figure out what we want to focus our attentions on on any given day and and the result is what we see on Twitter or designer news. So we can change this by helping the world understand what it is that we do and and, and being more transparent about it and and not cultivating that air of mystery that was a part of uh, the profession's DNA.
1: Yeah. So now from that, I'm going to go to a a question that's like near and dear to where your current bread is buttered, because a lot of times we identify people in their professions by the tools they use. And it used to be that we think, oh, you know, the, the dawn of digital design. A designer was somebody who used Photoshop or used Illustrator. And at that point, like way back, these tools were so incredibly expensive, which meant that they were totally pirated by anybody who wanted to learn. And now we're at a point. So it was like, oh, a designer is somebody who uses Photoshop. Like we still see this on resumes, like tools that you use define your capability in the profession. And then design thinking is saying, like, no, if you can use a Post-it, you can be a designer. And so it seems like redefining that style of work with those tools as design is helping to democratize. But you're in this world working with the tools that are slightly more expensive than Post-its. And so how Mm -hmm. do you see the relationship between, you know, the cost and complexity of these tools and the potential to democratize the profession and make it seem like something that is accessible to more people?
2: I do think that design tools today are, are largely more affordable than they were in the past. I think a lot of our competition has done a good job with that for sure. But we recognize that you know there are new people coming into the design profession all the time and that we are actually in an era now where it's not just the designer who needs access to the tool, but also people who are part of the design process who don't have design in their title at all, stakeholders, collaborators, et cetera. And so we take really seriously the idea that, that design needs to be democratized and that um, the tools need to be democratized specifically, that people need access to these tools in order to participate in the design process and, and, and help design flourish for everybody.
1: Mm-hmm. How have you been doing on the complexity side of the tool? Because that's, that's the other side. It's like, wow, I bought this box of software and now I open it up and oh, I want to be a designer. But is being a designer the same as being able to manipulate this incredibly complex tool that was actually initially de- designed for something kind of different, which was photo editing that right. was used for, uh, for digital design after that?
2: Adobe XD is, is one of the first of a whole new wave of creative professional apps that we've been working on, and it really acknowledges that the world has moved on from that phase where you would buy software in a big box, and then you would, you know, drive to Barnes and Noble and buy, <laughs> buy a a manual that was almost as big as the box itself, and then you know take them both home and you know, spend hours like you know, going through feature by feature, learning how everything worked. That's just not the way the world works anymore. And so when we started XD, we put a very high premium on a very minimalistic, very elegant, very easy interface. And you're right, that that's a part of democratization for sure. It's not just the price point. It's also how approachable is the interaction model? How how welcoming is it? And how punishing is it when, <laughs> when you do something wrong. And with XD, we like to think it's, it's, it's very forgiving.
1: That all sounds like it's all going in, in the right direction. And I want to take this, like, as we start to wrap up here, the other side of making the profession more welcoming and open to people is making it more diverse, you know, well, making it welcome to a broad variety uh, you know, people from a broad variety of backgrounds and experiences and, and coming into it, have you been doing any work in that area with the communities you've been talking to? Or do you see any progress there? Because design is still, like you mentioned early on, the, the leaders were, you know, these dudes, usually white yep. dudes, the people who, I guess, wish they were Don Draper-like. Yeah. Where, where are you seeing progress in that area to make the, the people making these choices more representative of the end users and customers?
2: There's certainly not as much progress as I would like to see, but everywhere I go and, and I talk to people about this issue a lot, there's certainly a tremendous amount of interest, actually, genuine desire to to try to affect this change. Diversity and inclusion is one of the things that I've been working on while here at Adobe, and there's been a lot of effort put into trying to to produce some programs and some initiatives that will make an impact. And I don't have anything to share today, but mm-hmm. it's an area of of intense interest for a lot of us here at Adobe and certainly for, for me personally.
1: Yeah, that's great to hear. Where do you see the the barriers?
2: There's um, a, really a lack of awareness of the industry as a potential career. I think, you know, you and I, we, we talk about design at a fairly advanced level of practice, meaning, you know, some of Mule's clients are some of those influential companies in the world and you know we'd like to think Adobe is respected everywhere as well. But again, going back to the lack of understanding of what design is, there's there's not a whole lot of discussion, you know, at at the high school level or, or the undergraduate level about design as a possibility for, for people to invest in as mm-hmm. a, a vocation. You know, and, and that idea of a vocation I think is really important. It's not design is necessarily always going to be like this Big storied career. A lot of times, design is, is a great way to make a living.
1: It's just work.
2: Yeah, it's just it's just work. And the way the industry is configured, it's it's actually a great feature that this idea that anybody can can join. And mm-hmm. and the tools are, are now more accessible than ever. So there's a lot of upside for us on the diversity and inclusion front. And it's going to take hard work and commitment. And also, it's going to take Really trying to change the perception and the understanding of what it what design means.
1: Cool. Well, well, thank you so much. So we're coming up to the end of our time, but you know that we we at Mule we like to tell people what to do as as well as asking <laughs> questions. And I'm just wondering if there's anything that you'd like to say, like any any sort of pronouncement or thing that you wish uh, people in our community out in the design field would would think about or take to heart that maybe they aren't thinking about enough already?
2: Yeah, I would say that if designers out there take the the time and the effort to seek out the side of design discourse, whether it's simple tweets or articles posted on Medium or or wherever else, seek out the stuff that is at least a little bit more challenging than than what you see on a day-to-day basis. Really try to patronize the people, the ideas that are pushing the industry forward. Whether it's podcasts like this or whether it's essays or, you know, events, just really just do your part in uh, voting up the stuff that is, you know, a little bit more challenging, maybe it gets you out of your comfort zone a little bit. I think mm-hmm. that's that if everybody does that, I think that's going to be a meaningful step forward.
1: Well, fantastic. Yeah, we, we all have a part in raising the bar for ourselves and, and everyone else.
0: Yeah, and raising the bar feels uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. I like. I like the way that you put that.
2: <laughs> it can. Yes.
1: <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. This has been really interesting as we pursue our our question, like what is the job of a designer and how can we make the whole field better and uh, contributing to better things out there in the world. So, thank you so much, Koi. This has been fantastic.
2: Thanks to both of you. It was really fun to, to have this discussion. Yeah.
0: Thank you.
1: And thanks to all of you out there listening to us here, bringing you the voice of design.
0: This season, we're asking the question, what is the job of a designer? What is
1: the job of a
2: designer?
0: Send your responses to us on Twitter at VOD underscore R-O-C-K-S, Vod Rocks. Or you can send us an email to VOD, V-O-D, at
1: com.